trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I trust this isn't your first foray into wrong think. Yeah, it's, you know, I joke around about it. And, you know, the whole revel in wrong think, that was that was supposed to be tongue-in-cheek. And yet, uh, I can't shake this feeling as I look around me day by day and, and feel the noose tightening on uh, free speech that uh, there's going to come a point, maybe sooner than later, that that uh, questioning the narrative, thinking for yourself, thinking outside the the uh, three by five index card of approved opinion is going to be considered and maybe even treated as some kind of serious thought crime. It just seems like it's happening in, in a lot of different places. Europe primarily, I think Ireland right now is is wrestling with uh, a particular hate speech bill where, it, you know, this is the, the scary thing about it. It's so ambiguous. Well, if you are engaging in speech that someone else might find offensive, holy cow, that is not only the most subjective call that anybody can make, but, you know, there are people out there, I don't think this is any exaggeration, there are people out there whose whole existence is premised on the idea of, I'm just waiting for someone to trip my hair trigger by whatever, improper affirmation of a particular, you know, uh, left-wing dogma, whatever it is. If you don't agree with me, that's offensive and I need to punish you. I actually saw a meme earlier today that kind of drove that home. Somebody had asked the question, you know, pertaining to, to the LGBT community. And they said, seriously, tell me what right LGBT individuals don't have that everybody else does have. And the answer from someone, I, I can't tell if it was satire or not because that's, that's just kind of where we are right now. Is, is this bizarre world or is this reality? The answer was, well, I don't have the right to send you to prison when you misgender me or when you refer to me by the wrong pronoun or something like that. I don't have the right to punish you for not thinking the way that I think you should think. Like I say, that could be really good satire, but good satire always has an element of truth. Boy, does that sound like a like a potential problem, right? That's, that's a, that's like wearing tap shoes into a cow pasture in a minefield and, uh, good luck. You're either way, you know, something bad is, is going to happen. Nevertheless. Okay. I don't want to dwell on the negative here. I, uh, I just want to point out, we've got our work cut out for us. I don't know that, uh, in my lifetime. And, and, and again, I feel like I've, I've paid pretty close attention. I have consciously tried to be aware of what's going on, to to be aware of deception and to, as, as far as possible, avoid, you know, passing on deception and to, to avoid being duped by it for at least the last 30 years. I mean, daily. I study things out and I look at things and that doesn't mean and I always get it right. Sometimes I don't. All I'm saying is I have three decades worth of experience in, in calibrating my BS meter, and it works pretty good. I assume it's still under warranty. And more importantly, I'm trying to encourage individuals like yourself to do the same thing. That doesn't mean you have to walk around in a permanent state of indecision. Oh, I just don't know what to believe. What, who can you believe? 
It just means that you've got to have that healthy sense of skepticism. By the way, that includes, even with the stuff that I say, no matter how smooth I may say it or no matter how convincing or persuasive I may try to sound, I don't want you just living on, you know, my my words or my take on something. I will never knowingly mislead my audience because it takes a long time to build up credibility and trust. And you can throw it away in a heartbeat just by betraying that trust once, one time. So I'm pretty careful about that kind of thing. You know, what's, what's more important than protecting your brand? Well, how about protecting your credibility? And I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen to colleagues who, you know, for the sake of uh, sensationalism or, you know, well, this will get me more clicks or this will get me, you know, more spotlight time, um, have, have kind of sold themselves out and, uh, and become a caricature of, of who they once were. That's sad, but it happens. It's human nature. That doesn't mean they're irredeemable. It just means that's a painful lesson to learn because once that credibility is squandered, If you earn it back, it is going to take a long time to do so. So you got to be pretty careful. All right. Having said that, welcome to the show. If this is your first time, um, hopefully I haven't scared you away already, you know, with the the radical rantings of, of, uh, you know, someone who's not getting with the program. But I feel like there is, there's a time that every one of us will come to in our lives where we have to make a conscious decision of whether to go along with whatever, you know, the, the crowd, the herd, if you will, is, is doing. Or we have to step back and, and in some cases actually separate ourselves from polite society. And that could be a figurative thing. It could just be, well, I don't agree with that. Or it could be that, no, I can't, I can't go there. In some cases, it may mean, oh, heck no, I'm, I'm turning and I'm going the other direction. But the crazy thing about it is, if you do that, if you in any way challenge the status quo or in any way question the status quo in a way that might cause others to doubt, it's the most bizarre thing. It's, it's like we're, we're trained as masses to punish those who deviate from, from what we consider the norm. You've heard the crabs in a bucket analogy. If one crab starts crawling out, the other crabs reach up and yank him back in. Where do you think you're going? I'm sure Plato, you know, with his analogy of the cave, would would probably have some thoughts on this as well. But the bottom line is, people feel comfortable, they feel pretty safe in their delusions, and it, it will tick them off if you point out something, if you point out a truth or point out some fact that they are not ready to acknowledge. And by the way, I just want to make clear, that doesn't mean that, that we're better than them. If you understand something, more likely than not, it's because you have paid the price to understand it. And it's helpful to remember that every single one of us is somewhere in that journey of trying to sort out what's real from what isn't. Some people don't really care. They'll just be carried along by the current. Well, whatever, you know, which way is the wind blowing? That's where I'm going to go. That's where everybody else is going. It feels safer. You're not likely to attract criticism. But if you do, happen to, uh, you know, latch into the idea that, well, it's important to me that, that truth matters more to me than approval or acceptance or accolades. You're going you're gonna to suffer for your beliefs. And for some reason, we're in a very weird part of that historical cycle of crisis and, and, uh, and chaos 
to where the the suffering is is going to be more intense. The stakes are higher. I don't know how to describe it other than if you uh, if you stand up for truth, you will have a target painted on you. And this program is specifically for the people who understand that and are okay with it. They've they've accepted it, they've embraced it and said, "You know what? So be it." In fact, really, truth be told, this this program is for those people who not only accept it but who who actually cherish the idea that, yes, I was born for this time. I was born for a time in which I would be willing to stand up and be strong. Not because I'm better than everybody else, but because that is what my creator expects of me. Now, not everybody feels that way. And if if they don't, it's okay. I I get it. Self-preservation is a big thing. And look, for for a lot of years, I wanted to run with the crowd too and be safe and make sure that, you know, well, I don't don't want to, you know, stand out like some weirdo. But eventually you can come to a point where, again, if, if you are seeking after truth, you first of all learn that it's very uncomfortable. And, and that I'm not, I'm not just talking about political truth. I'm talking about spiritual truth. I'm talking about intellectual truth or even just learning things about yourself that you're like, ah, oh, crap. You know, I didn't, I didn't realize that, you know, here's one of my failings. But if you're going to be a truth seeker, you got to be willing to, to face these things squarely. And then you grow used to the discomfort. In fact, there's, there's almost a peculiar comfort in being uncomfortable or realizing, hey, I'm not running with the masses. Now, that shouldn't morph into a superiority complex. It's, it's more a matter of, I want to think for myself. So that, uh, that is what I do on this program each and every day. I, I would encourage you, if, if you're a first-time listener, please consider subscribing to my show notes, which you will find at the Brian Hyde Show. Com. All you have to do is go to the Brian Hyde Show, click on the show notes. Down at the bottom of the page, you're going to see a little subscribe button. It's going to ask you for your email, which I will meticulously protect. I don't share it with anybody. I don't sell it to anybody. I'm not going to sit there and spam you day in and day out with the latest, greatest, neatest offer. What I'll do is I will send you a copy of my show notes, absolutely free of charge. And with no obligation that you must read every single one of them and hang on every single word. (laughs) I won't do that to you. But I'll encourage you to uh, take a look at uh, some of the different articles and uh, thought uh, leaders that I share. Links to some of the various guests that I have. And if you're not careful, you might learn a thing or two in the process. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Sorry for the long introduction, but uh, I kind of got on a bit of a roll, and uh, gravity being what it is, sometimes it's kind of hard to stop. So I, I, I first thought of The Simpsons. I'm a big fan of The Simpsons, or at least I was through about the first 11 seasons. After that, they got a little bit weird. They've been going on for, what, 30 years now? And uh, and, and sadly, they've, they've succumbed to wokeness and... And it's it's a it's a tragic thing, but nonetheless, I am uh, I'm still kind of a fan of the Simpsons. And one of the one of my favorite episodes was "Who Shot Mr. Burns?" And Mr. Burns, of course, the owner of the Springfield nuclear power plant, he devises a way to uh, basically become even richer than he is, as he would say. Finally, the rich white man has the power. You know, <laughs> he he decides to block the sun 
over Springfield so that people will have to buy more of his uh, nuclear-generated electricity. And, of course, it's kind of a big standing joke, but uh, I, I had to do a double take when I saw the news story that, uh, well, you know, in the interest of climate change, we are going to have to block sunlight to prevent the Earth from heating up. Now, I, I guess I, I owe you some full disclosure here. I am definitely a skeptic of the people who are, are probably the, the loudest proponents of climate change. I don't think necessarily they're all bad people, although there are some that it's like, wow, is, is Karl Marx... The, the bottom of that iceberg, we see the tip of, well, I'm really concerned about what's happening to the world, and here's how we can save the climate. Here's how we can save the planet, because it seems like every solution seems rooted in Marxism. I'm not a fan of that. But now there is a serious proposal that maybe we need to uh, limit the amount of sunlight reaching the Earth. Thomas L. Knapp, writing for the Garrison Center, uh, has a, a really good take on this. He says, the White House political reports offered measured support for the idea of studying how to block sunlight from hitting Earth's surface as a way to limit global warming. And he says such geoengineering solutions to global warming might range from injecting sulfates into the upper atmosphere to reflect sunlight back into space, as happens naturally with large volcanic eruptions, to placing gigantic sunshades at key points in space. That was what got me thinking of Mr. Burns. Now, Thomas Knapp says, eyebrows naturally rose. While suggesting that there are only two sides to the climate debate or climate change debate is an oversimplification, he says there seems to be two major sides to that debate, both opposing solar radiation modification on principle. Side A, the typical environmentalist who believes that human activity is responsible for an undue, for an undue warming trend that will ultimately lead to catastrophic results for both humanity and other species if something isn't done. Then there's side B, the typical climate skeptic, who believes that the warming isn't happening or that the warming is a natural cycle not caused by human activity, or even that the warming is a good thing that will, for example, increase the amount of arable land in areas currently too cold for farming. Now, Thomas L. Knapp says, it's pretty obvious why side B isn't interested in engineering solutions for reducing the amount of sunlight hitting the planet's surface and warming it. If it's not happening or if it's a good thing, why try to fix what ain't broken? Possibly end up causing real damage by interfering with natural cycles. As for side A, though, he says, its loudest voices tend to share convictions above and beyond concern for the environment as such. They'd be against the activities they blame for environmental damage, whether those activities actually caused said damage or not. By the way, he's right about this. They don't like people flying around in airplanes or driving gas guzzlers, mega corporations producing cheap goods in smog-belching factories, large farms producing monoculture food as opposed to multi-crop, multi-stock, small farms of days past. They gear their environmental prescriptions toward changing an economic system they oppose, and to be fair, most on side B support. They don't want environmental problems solved in any way that doesn't involve drastic deindustrialization, depopulation, and a command economy. Now, he says, then, of course, there's me, Thomas L. Knapp, on either side of those sides. He says, I suspect anthropogenic global warming is a thing. I suspect it's damaging or dangerous to humanity and other life forms. As for that matter, natural cycles can be. And he says, I would like to see something done about it, but... He says, it's not like we've been living in an anarchist society until just now and suddenly needed that newfangled government invention to ride in and save the day. 
Rather, he says, we are where we are either because centuries of government got us here or because centuries of government failed to prevent us from getting here. So why should we expect government to be either able or inclined to fix things? But if it's going to be a government thing, he says, I'd prefer the most easily reversible, changeable government thing possible. So he says, I guess put me down in lukewarm support of a giant remote control sunshade at Earth slash Sun Lagrange point L1. <laughs> I like his, his pragmatism there. And, you know, I, I admit I'm, I'm probably what would be termed a climate change denier in the sense that I really don't believe that uh, human activity is, is solely to blame for uh, climate change. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't think you know, humans can't have negative impact on the environment. We can. And pollution and, you know, the, the big mountain of plastic floating around out in the Pacific Ocean is probably a good example of this. However, I also believe that there are cycles that take place. And uh, probably one of the best resources I could recommend for someone who's willing to step outside that box and think about this in, in a slightly different fashion, go to Suspicious Observers on YouTube. I don't know much about Ben. He's the scientist who, who runs that YouTube channel. But I love his videos. I love his matter-of-factness. And he is very much tuned into the idea that, look, what we're seeing is a 12,000-year cycle. And it has to do with the, with the, the major climate-controlling influence, not just for Earth, but for every planet within our solar system, is our star, the sun itself. And he's got some great science to back this up. He keeps an eye on what's happening, you know, in the heliosphere. He keeps an eye on what's happening with the uh, electromagnetic radiation and so forth. By the way, I think tomorrow we might actually be seeing the northern lights over a good portion of the northern hemisphere um, just because of uh, electromagnetic uh, activity, some kind of a, a solar storm that, that's coming in. So there, I think there are alternatives here. But the main thing is I just don't and can't buy the idea that, uh, well, you know, the problem is human beings are just, you know, they're, they're too involved and, and enjoying too many luxuries. And gosh dang it, I love my uh, air conditioning and I have no intention of wanting to give it up. But it goes well beyond that. It's the idea that we need central planning and we need, you know, someone deciding how much energy you can consume and the whole carbon neutral thing. I think there's responsible ways to use the fossil fuels. We talked a little bit with Eric Peters about this yesterday. It seems like there's a very concerted effort to get us out of cars or at least out of gasoline-powered cars and into more tightly controlled electric vehicles or, for that matter, out of traveling generally. I mean, I've heard proposals, and I don't know, how serious do you take this? The World Economic Forum is suggesting that these are the standards, you know, and, and, and some of those standards include things like, well, you should be allowed to travel once every three years or once every five years, but no more than 1,500 kilometers from where you live. Um, who, who gets to make that decision? Why, why, would, why would they make a decision like that? You know the elite, the people who meet at Davos and the people who uh, um, are, are meeting actually right now just north of me in Haley, Idaho, a lot of the Bilderbergers and so forth, the really rich elite folks, they're not going to give up their Learjets. They're not going to give up their limousines. They're not going to give up their yachts, all of which consume pretty big quantities of fossil fuels. They don't run those things on wind. They don't run them on solar. 
But they like to pretend that, well, but we're so concerned about the planet. We think that you should give up all of your creature comforts, but they're not going to. Sorry, that just doesn't pass the smell test, and I don't think it should, at least for anybody who's thinking. So I'll have a link to Thomas L. Knapp's article in uh, the show notes, which you can find at thebrianheightshow.com. A big sunshade. I don't know. There's some days I might appreciate that. Temperatures pushing north of 90 degrees. I don't do well with the heat. I much prefer the cool. Besides, I look better in bulky clothes. Go figure. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Let's talk a little bit about peace. Right now, the world does not seem to be headed into a season of peace. In fact, if anything, uh, I'm with a lot of people who are just kind of holding their breath, waiting for the situation with Russia and Ukraine to, to turn into something much bigger and much uglier. I'm not hoping for it, mind you. I'm just looking at the people who are pulling strings, you know, behind the scenes or actively trying to, to inflame the situation. And I'm really sad to say, it appears that uh, a lot of the people who are doing that uh, work within my own government. I know it's, it's, it's really an interesting thing. And the, the conditioning of, well, you know, anything that's uh, not against Russia is uh, Russian propaganda. But uh, that doesn't seem to leave much room for those of us who believe, well, what if there aren't any really good guys in this? And I'll, I'll tell you, without apology, I don't think Russia is entirely wrong. I think it's tragic, you know, that, uh, that people are, are dying in Ukraine and that, um, that, that it came to military conflict in the first place. But I am looking at a much more formidable foe and dangerous enemy than Russia or Ukraine. And sadly, that enemy is firmly involved and is, is exacerbating the situation, and it's our own government, or at least elements of our own government. And it's not something new. It's not like they just, well, they just suddenly got into this mode. They've been doing it for years. This is where you kind of have to learn to separate love of country and patriotism for your country from love of your government and obedience to your government. Governments can be wrong. Sometimes they need to be corrected, and that's what a patriot would do. It's not my country, right or wrong. It's my country. May she always be right, which acknowledges that sometimes our government may be wrong. All right, let's talk, let's talk peace, though. Barry Brownstein, in a piece published on the American Institute for Economic Research, asks why, or rather explains, why President Kennedy's 1963 peace speech still matters today. He says, by 1963, the United States, the Soviet Union, France, the United Kingdom, and China had conducted over 500 nuclear tests in the atmosphere. The fallout from these tests poisoned our air, land, and bodies, yet the American public, convinced that an arms race was necessary for their safety, was largely opposed to an atmospheric nuclear test ban treaty. In June 1963, just months before he was assassinated, President Kennedy gave the commencement address at American University, an address that came to be known as the Peace Speech. Kennedy was getting close to achieving his longtime goal of a test ban treaty, and his speech was a call to shift the mindset of the nation. 
At the outset, Kennedy argued that the peace Americans should seek is not a Pax Americana enforced on the world by American weapons of war, not the peace of the grave or the security of the slave. Instead, he said, I am talking about genuine peace, the kind of peace that makes life on earth worth living, the kind that enables men and nations to grow and to hope and build a better life for their children, not merely peace for Americans, but peace for all men and women, not merely peace in our time, but peace for all time, end quote. Barry Brownstein writes, Kennedy expressed understandings ahead of his time and sadly still ahead of our time. In our personal lives, we claim to be wrong to demand others change first. We do the same in international affairs. Instead, Kennedy argued those who seek peace must go first. Being right, in Kennedy's words, by distributing blame or pointing the finger of judgment is the booby prize. Kennedy asked us to stop vilifying others and put our attitudes towards freedom and peace in order. Some say that it is useless to speak of peace until the leaders of the Soviet Union adopt a more enlightened attitude. He said, I hope they do, but I also believe that we must re-examine our own attitude as individuals and as a nation, for our attitude is as essential as theirs. Now, Barry Brownstein says, holding on to a victim's mindset that others must change first is a source of turmoil in our lives. Like a country at war, our mind at war hinders our flourishing. Kennedy asked Americans to examine our attitude toward peace itself. He refused to accept that peace is impossible or unreal. Apply this personally. Notice when you judge others and mentally gripe, they'll never change. If we understand that ideas we hold about others never leave our mind as we condemn others, we doom ourselves by saying, I'll never change. Oh, that's a, that's a powerful point. So President Kennedy's peace speech was no new age, visualize it and we will manifest it message. He was pointing to a process of gradual evolution and not the absolute infinite concept of peace and goodwill, which some fantasies and fanatics dream. Wishful thinking only invites discouragement and incredulity. He added, there is no grand or magic formula for peace. Instead, genuine peace must be the sum of many acts. For peace is a process, a way of solving problems. We begin that process by looking beyond our conditioned stereotypes. Just as we don't have to love our neighbor to get along, we don't have to pretend to love the ways of other nations. Our commitment, Kennedy urged, is to live together in mutual tolerance, submitting disputes to a just and peaceful settlement. Our dislikes and likes are not fixed in stone, and we should never make a potential friend into an enemy. It may be unrealistic for fear to turn to love, but with a shift in mindset, fear can become peace. Kennedy pointed to absurd Soviet propaganda about America. Our response, he pleaded, is not to fall into the same trap as the Soviets. Not to see only a distorted and desperate view of the other side. Not to see conflict as inevitable. Accommodation is impossible. And communication is nothing more than an exchange of threats. Sixty years later, the views of Americans are shaped by monochromatic, unnuanced views of Russia. In fact, he says the world seems less safe than at any time since the Cuban Missile Crisis. In perhaps the most compelling message of the speech, Kennedy urged Americans to have empathy for the Soviets and understand that they, too, have legitimate security concerns. Here's what Kennedy said, quote, No nation in the history of battle ever suffered more than the Soviet Union in the Second World War. At least 20 million lost their lives. Countless millions of homes and families were burned or sacked. 
A third of the nation's territory, including nearly two-thirds of its industrial base, was turned into a wasteland, a loss equivalent to, this, to the destruction of this country east of Chicago. End quote. Now, Barry Brownstein says, I was well familiar with the destruction the Nazis inflicted on the Soviet Union during World War II. To imagine a wasteland from Chicago to the East Coast gives Soviet suffering new visceral meaning. Kennedy didn't mention any philosophers that helped guide his moral compass. Still, Barry says, as I read his appeal to Americans to walk in another person's shoes, I thought of the philosopher Martin Buber. Buber, in his, in his best-known work written in 1923, I and Thou, Buber observed, we are always choosing between two mutually exclusive ways of seeing the world, I, Thou, or I, It. His point is we mostly see things through the I, It lens. Others are seen as less than us, either as objects that help us or obstacles that get in our way. Think for a moment about how quickly you get irritated in a long supermarket line if the cashier seems to move slowly. We are not the center of the universe. We can ignore the as-my-world-turns soap opera being narrated in our heads. Now, in contrast, through the lens of I-thou, we see others as individuals, as people as important as we are. We take an out-of-breath and human... We take an out-breath, rather, and humanly connect with the cashier who has problems and difficulties as real as our own. Seeing through the I-thou lens, like seeking peace begins with a commitment to a process of becoming more aware of our attitudes and behaviors instead of a desire to change someone else. Just as with people, with nations too, suspicion on one side breeds suspicion on the other. In a warning for our time, Kennedy said, Above all, while defending our own vital interests, nuclear powers must avert those confrontations which bring an adversary to a choice of either a humiliating retreat or a nuclear war. That's timely for our time. And Barry Brownstein says today, American policymakers seem determined to ignore Kennedy's warning and not give Putin an off-ramp from his disastrous invasion. Instead, they're determined to bring Putin to a humiliating defeat. One prominent foreign policy pundit even argues for arming Ukraine with nuclear weapons. Kennedy focused on humanity's common interests saying, we all inherit this small planet, we all breathe the same air, we all cherish our children's future, and we are all mortal. Most importantly, we all have minds that can value peace over threats and domination. Echoing Eisenhower's 1961 warnings, Kennedy reminded us peace and freedom walk together. Since Kennedy, America has been at war in Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Somalia, Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan. There have been wars on poverty, wars on drugs, cancer, and COVID. As Kennedy predicted, we have lost, not gained, freedom. And us versus them, tribal psychosis, seems to be rotting America from the inside out. Kennedy would say the cure lies not in defeating Putin or COVID, but in changing our hearts and minds. I know that's asking a lot, right? It's a lot easier just to, you know, take the talking points, run on them, or run with them, rather, and hate on, you know, whoever they're aimed at. I'm convinced that uh, we we will find peace on the other side of this fourth turning. But I'm not gonna lie, I'm pretty concerned about uh, what lies directly ahead, because it looks anything but peaceful. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Two quick articles I want to touch on in the closing segment of today's program. And uh, one of them is uh, about uh, this diversity, inclusion, and equity training. I know they kind of mix it up so the acronym isn't DIE, but I think... I think it's an accurate acronym. Uh, got an article here from Robert A. Bishop. This was published on AmericanThinker.com about how diversity, inclusion, and equity training is essentially modern Maoism seeking to punish thought crime. And if you've ever wondered about the brainwashing tool that, uh, that Mao used with great effect in China's cultural revolution back in 1966, it was the struggle session which is psychological torture. That's, that's where a struggle session is public denunciations and humiliation in front of crowds targeting citizens who held Chinese traditions for re-education uh, to create unity and consolidate power through thought reform. So basically, you'd be hauled up in front of the crowd, told to confess your sins, and, you know, basically humiliated, called out, you know, asked all kinds of questions. I, I've been watching this here in Idaho, and it really made some people angry when I compared this to a struggle session, but... I'm just saying, this is, it really had the feel of it. And it's, it's the superintendent for one of the school districts in northern Idaho. And I don't know what it is in the water or in the teachers union or, or some of these parents that are just activists, but holy cow, I have never seen a more shrill, cackling bunch of Karens in my life. And this, this guy, Brandon Durst, who has been appointed as the interim uh, superintendent for this school district, stepped outside of the district offices to, to answer questions. And for about a half hour, he answered pointed question after pointed question, lots of antagonism. And it was so clear that so many of the people who were there to question him were there to hold a very public struggle session. What do you intend to do about a community that despises you? you know, and he wouldn't take the bait. He didn't apologize, and he didn't, uh, you know, oh, please forgive me, and I'm so sorry. Here, let us hang the sign of shame around your neck. But basically, what he was being subjected to was a modern-day struggle session. And this is something that's being trained into our kids through diversity, inclusion, and equity training. It's nihilism indoctrination, and it has swept through Western institutions. It's a modern Maoist struggle session. And individuals who fail to cooperate or acknowledge their bias or white privilege in this DIE training will find themselves ostracized, publicly humiliated, possibly losing their jobs. That's because these diversity, inclusion, and equity incentivize, incentivize the formation of employee hierarchical groups around sex, race, ethnicity, and sexual orientation, which fosters resentment. There is no objective evidence that these programs reduce racism, bigotry, and prejudice. In fact, I would argue that their whole point is to increase it, to make it part of what's happening. So it's a great article. Bob Bishop is the author Again, you'll find it in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. All right, let's, let's share one more uh, here. This is from James Howard Kunstler. Just a quick update on current events. The blob begins to quiver. He says, when you deny what is self-evident, you are at war with reality, and that never ends well. That is the ultimate disposition of our country's years-long misadventure in maximum dishonesty. The American administrative blob has not just lied about everything it does, but used the government machinery at hand to destroy everything it touches in a terminal hysterical effort to cover up its misdeeds, especially its crimes against its own people. So he says, get this, 
There is no way that Ukraine can can avoid defeat in its U.S.-provoked struggle with Russia. Russia has every advantage. It's next door to Ukraine. It has robust arms production capacity. The terrain of the war is its own historic borderland, which it has controlled since the 18th century, except for the past 30 years when Ukraine functioned as grift central for U.S. military contractors and their political enablers. Despite massive arms assistance from the U.S. and grudging contributions from the NATO contingent in Europe, there is almost nothing left of the Ukrainian military and troops, equipment, and munitions. Ukraine will return eventually to demilitarized borderland status. So James Howard Kunstler asks, what are NATO's alternatives now? It can try to return to negotiation. Russia has no reason to trust that process, given how the Minsk I and II accords worked out. NATO and the U.S. willfully and dishonestly voided them. The U.S. and NATO could send their own troops into Ukraine, but that would be suicide, considering the alliance's arms and munitions rather draw down and America's feminized army. The U.S. could go a little further and provoke a nuclear exchange, suicide by other means, and given the level of terminal hysterical insanity in the U.S. blob, he says that's not out of the question. One likely reality-based alternative is to stand by and let Russia complete its special military operation to pacify and neutralize Ukraine. Now, the prevailing theory is that this would be the end of America's world dominance militarily, and effectively the end of NATO, but also the end financially for the U.S. as the non-West abandons the dollar. In that scenario, the BRICS nations dump their trillions in U.S. bond holdings, rather, sending all that putative money back to America, stoking a king-hell inflation effectively bankrupting us. It would be the final fruit of the disastrous Joe Biden regime imposed on us by election fraud by the blob. The U.S. reduced in a few short years to a broke, socially disordered, marginalized power susceptible to its own political breakup. Not a tantalizing outcome, but perhaps better than turning planet Earth into a smoldering ashtray. That outcome would force our country to turn inward and face its own stupendous failures of honor, decency, and integrity. It would set the end of the blob's hegemony inside the USA. The question is whether the blob sets America's house on fire in an attempt to save itself and escape a legal accounting for its crimes. One kindling stack already burning is the pileup of jive prosecutions aimed at Mr. Trump. He says, you may know that the attempt to kick him off the game board using special counsel Jack Smith may easily lead to severe civil disorder and possibly a counter coup, a U.S. first. The current Mar-a-Lago dock box case is as much a complete fabrication as were Russiagate and impeachment number one. Mr. Trump's telephone inquiry to Ukraine about the Biden family grifting operations there, now firmly documented to be true. An upright judge would summarily dismiss the Mar-a-Lago case and slam sanctions on the U.S. attorneys involved, including disbarment and criminal investigation for mounting a maliciously fraudulent prosecution. A.G. Merrick Garland and his deputy, Lisa Monaco, obviously would have some splaining to do, possibly before juries. A long list of public figures populating the blob away to reckoning. And that list includes Hillary and Bill Clinton and their retainers, Barack Obama and Retinue, John Brennan, James Clapper, James Coney, Christopher Ray, plus Rosenstein, Strzok, also McCabe, Carlin, Orr, Mueller, Weisman, Horowitz, Atkinson, Sierra Mella, Vindman, Representative Adam Schiff, Senator Mark Warner, William Barr, Avril Haines, Marie Yovanovitch, 
William Burns, James Boasberg, Mark Elias, Michael Bromwich, David Lofman, Alejandro Mayorkas, Xavier Becerra, Anthony Fauci, Rochelle Walensky, Francis Collins, Lloyd Austin, Mark Milley, Anthony Blinken, Jake Sullivan, Ron, Ron Klain, Nancy Pelosi, Liz Cheney. The list goes way on, but he says that's a start. So James Howard Kunstler says the weeks of summer 2023 are the fulcrum for a great public attitude adjustment. The blob psyops are finally failing among just enough of the formerly mind-screwed to tip the nation's consensus against the gang behind all this treasonous political depravity. Even the so-called mainstream media is running scared. If they happen to turn in a desperate act of self-preservation, it will all be over for the blob. I think he's being pretty optimistic. Even if what he's describing is perhaps a pretty pretty stark scenario for those of us, you know, outside the beltway to consider. So I, I take solace in this. I don't know how it's going to shake out. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't read tea leaves. I don't have the gift of prophecy. But I do understand that the kind of corruption that we see playing out before us and that is becoming more and more apparent by the day is not sustainable. It can't go on without end. The rot is deep enough and it's, it's uh, so widespread that there is no way that this, this whole rotten edifice isn't going to come crashing down at some point. Now, if that sounds fatalistic, well, what are you saying, Brian? It's the end of our government? Well, it, it's the end of the, the current incarnation or perversion of our government. But I'm not, con- I'm not convinced that that's a bad thing necessarily. The principles and practices of freedom still are viable, even if we have chosen to abandon them over the past few generations. The point is, we have work ahead of us, and I think that work is going to look a lot more like building what comes next. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. We know what the practices are and the principles are that can provide a limited government whose job is to protect your God-given rights and allow you to enjoy life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But at this point, that uh, Leviathan that rules over us, yeah, just, uh, it's going to fall. This is The Brian Hyde Show.